9, verses 1 through 3. Where we find the Apostle Paul, a Jew, speaking of the Jews. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Hear God's word. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this word of yours through the Apostle Paul. We confess to you that, as Paul later says, here is the mystery of Israel, and it is to us or to many a mystery which you are revealing to us, which we struggle to grasp, of which we are ignorant and we need to be enlightened. Help us, O Lord, to know what it is you have to say to us. Help us to sit humbly beneath this teaching. Help our hearts to be stirred to praise you like Paul did at the end of this mighty section. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the prior sermon, we took a more general view of chapters 9 uh, through 11. And if you missed that sermon, that might be a good place to begin. Uh, But having done that, uh, it it is time to take a more detailed look, beginning with chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Let me just briefly, however, summarize uh, the broad theme or point being made here. We've seen that Paul is expounding a great mystery. I keep referring to that. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 is what I think uh, is the theme verse, the thesis of the whole uh, or the purpose statement. I think that's a better way to put it of this whole broader section, chapters nine through 11. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What's he talking about here? Well, he's expounding this mystery and he's saying many are ignorant. It's possible that many in this church are ignorant, uh, if only for lack of uh, any kind of detailed study of these of these chapters and verses. And so here I am like Paul. I am seeking to expound the mystery which concerns Israel. The mystery is put like this. It's, it's all summarized in that one verse. Again, chapter 11, verse 25, he says, first, there is uh, in part a blindness upon Israel. And second, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So look at each of those two points in turn. One concerns the present state of the Jews with respect to salvation. The tragedy of their current state uh, is stated by John in the beginning of his gospel. John chapter one, verse 11. In many ways, we could say. Romans chapters 9 through 11 are an exposition of this single statement by John. This is what he says. He came to his own, speaking of Jesus, the word which became flesh. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now, Paul is reflecting upon that here as one of those people is one of the Jews. He's reflecting upon the tragedy of that statement. Jesus came to his own, but they didn't receive him. The unbelief of the Jews. Now, surely uh, you say that's something that's tragic. If you have any sense of the teaching of the whole of the Old Testament. Why did they not receive him? Because blindness in part is currently upon Israel. That is their current state. But did you also notice the word until? 
that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Do you notice the the note of hope there? He's saying there's something that is going to happen in the future with respect to this people. Yes, they are blinded in part for now, but only until this other thing happens. Another way to describe their blindness, by the way, is what uh, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I meant to say this earlier. Let me say so now. Speaking of the Jews, he says, But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Jews. The scriptures are read to them, and yet Christ is concealed from them. There is a veil that is lying over their hearts. A blindness has come upon the Jews. We could say a judicial blindness. Who blinded them? It was God himself. But what Paul is entertaining here is, with respect to the Jews, is is this always going to be the case? Is there any hope? Is there any future for the Jews? And so I think uh, the way, uh, by the way, uh, the until, let me say something more about that. There are two things that Paul looks forward to. He looks forward to the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, verse 25, until the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. But in other places, he speaks of the fullness of Israel. Verse 20, uh, verse 12, rather. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentile, how much more their fullness? And so Paul anticipates a fullness of the Gentiles followed by a fullness of the Jews. That's what we're looking forward to. Or he says in verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? That's what we're looking forward to. We understand presently the unbelief of the Jews. We understand presently they stand outside, but we look forward to them coming in again. We look forward to their fullness. And so again, to quote John Murray, he says, the blindness of Israel is neither complete. It is partial. There is still a remnant of believers, even among the Jews, nor is it final. There is something future with respect to the Jews. I think that is a very good summary Of the teaching here. I've been reading this week uh, a little book by Ian Murray, the the Puritan Hope. I had forgotten until one of you reminded me that this book is all about this subject. Uh, It is about the Puritan Hope in the future of the Jews and how this informed their whole outlook on the history of redemption and even uh, their present outlook on the church and her mission. I say this because, and I'm going to continue to reflect upon this in sermons to come, because I wonder how strange what I'm saying to you sounds. I'm talking about the salvation of the Jews. You say, wait a second, Pastor, what are you talking about? I'm familiar with that in dispensational circles. I haven't heard this from a Reformed pulpit. Well, I'm here to tell you that this is classic Reformed teaching. This is straight out of the Puritans. This is straight out of Jonathan Edwards. You say it's not out of Calvin. I grant you that. (laughs) You'll find it in Lloyd-Jones, you'll find it in John Murray, all the books I've been using. Uh, but this book has been especially helpful in tracing the historical development. I could summarize the position by the Puritan William Perkins. He says, the Lord says, all the nations shall be blessed in Abraham. Hence, I gather 
that the nation of the Jews shall be called and converted to the participation of this blessing. When and how God knows, but that it shall be done before the end of the world. We know that's a great summary. I don't know how it's going to happen. Paul doesn't tell us, but it is something that he says is going to happen. The Jews are out, but they're going to be in. Isn't that amazing to consider? Uh, Do you know this is something that's also found in our larger catechism? How few of us have read the larger catechism? Well, it says this in the question. Let's see here. The question, what do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. There it is in our confessional standard. So you say, well, pastor, that's something strange. I'm unfamiliar with this. And I say, uh, I am speaking only from the standards of this church. I, 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 I will admit, though, and this is an, another idea that I'm going to develop, I think, more in the future uh, sermon and sermons, and that this is something that is debated in the OPC. It's something that's been debated in this church. Uh, do any of you remember when Morris Roberts came some 12 years ago to this church? He's a Scottish Presbyterian. Do you know that he was going to teach on this subject? But our, our former pastor said, you had better not because we're not in agreement on the subject. Well, there was our former pastor at odds with Morris Roberts. Well, I was so interested in what he had to say. I went online and I listened to his teaching and I found that I did agree with his teaching and that I disagreed with the prior pastor. But I have to say that what, what I'm saying here is is something that there is not agreement about in the Presbyterian Church. There is disagreement. I'm giving you the Puritan view, the classic view, what you could say, the Scottish view. If you go into a Scottish Presbyterian church today, this is what you'll find. You won't always find it in Orthodox Presbyterian churches. I plan to interact with the other view, some in the coming sermons. I only say all that to say, I hope this is nothing strange. Not from the standpoint of historic Protestant and Puritan teaching. I want to be perfectly clear about something as I say all this, and I hope this will clarify what it is I'm advocating for. And I'm responding in part to some of the questions that I got last Sunday. My interest is not in the current state of affairs. Okay, I'm not going to be interacting with the state or the nation of Israel uh, or what's going on in Israel today. So my interest is not in the nation of Israel. Or any kind of speculation that this might play in what the Apostle Paul says here. Except to say, as J.C. Ryle did long ago, it may have some part. The gathering of the Jews into a nation may have some part. But that's not what I'm, what I'm interested in. I'm not saying with any authority that it will have anything to do with what I'm saying. My, na- my interest is not in nations, Israel or any. It's in the church. It's in the elect. It's in the called. It's in salvation. And the contention of the apostle here is this, that though it is tragic that the Jews of all people should stand outside of the church presently. That was true in his day. It's true in our day. If you've ever interacted with a Jew, you'll know this. The veil is over the heart. I don't know anyone who is more hostile to the person of Jesus Christ than them. In in my experience, there is so obviously a veil over their hearts. We're in the same redemptive historical position as the apostle Paul. And, and this is tragic that the Jews are outside. Although that is true, the apostle is saying the day is coming when this shall change and the Jews shall come into the church and the veil will be lifted. That's the teaching. Let me read one more thing from uh, Ian Murray's book, uh, quoting one of the Puritans, this time Robert Bale. 
He says, there is nothing here for the point in hand. We, we grant willingly that the nation of the Jews shall be converted and so on. This shall be a matter of exceeding joy to the whole church. But that the converted Jews shall return to Canaan to build Jerusalem. That Christ shall come from heaven to reign among them for a thousand years. There is no such thing intimated in the scriptures in hand. We're talking about the church. And this is something that should be of exceptional interest to Gentiles. You say, well, he's talking to the Jews. All right. Paul was a Jew. I understand that. But I'm a Gentile. Why should I care about that? Well, you remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. He says, be careful. They were cut out so that you might stand. But be careful. Because the same hand that brought you in is able and cut them out is able to cut you out as well. So there's your warning. Be careful. Romans chapter 11. You stand by grace. There is no room for pride here. But there's another reason that this should interest Gentiles like those in Rome. Remember, these these were Gentile Christians or to the saints in Tallahassee. Why should you care about the future of the Jews? Because of what he says in chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be for, but life from the dead? You see, the apostle doesn't say the Jews are out, the Gentiles are in. But the day is coming when the Gentiles are out and the Jews will be in. No, he says What The Jews are out, the Gentiles are in. Oh, but look forward to the day when the Jews come in and this will be immeasurable blessing to the Gentiles who are already in. If their being cut out was blessing to the world, how much more will their engrafting be? I wonder how many of you have read the little book by Richard Sibbs, um, The Bruised Reed. Well, this is what he says. I'm, I'm quoting from the Puritan Hope again, but he's speaking to Gentiles. He says, The faithful Jews rejoice to think of the calling of the Gentiles. And why should we not joy to think of the calling of the Jews? You see, in the Old Testament, the the faithful Jews were looking forward to the Gentiles being called. Why should not the Gentiles now in the New Testament era look forward to the future calling of the Jews? There's this glorious reversal, but there's also this wonderful parallel in both Testaments. That's why we should be interested Because it concerns us. It always did. But here let us see at the beginning. Paul is speaking as a Jew about Jews. Verses 1 through 3. He is reflecting upon their current state of unbelief. And so. This Jew is lamenting very strongly the state of the Jews. His people. That's what we find in these verses. This profound lament. Let me first as a first point. Offer the teaching and then as a second point, the implications or the application. The first thing we notice is the very strong language of verse one. He puts his argument as emphatically as one could imagine. When he seems to say as much as he could, he adds something else. I tell the truth in Christ. He could have stopped there, but he goes on. I'm not lying. Then he goes on. My conscience also bearing witness with me. In the Holy Spirit, superlative upon superlative. First and foremost, it's the truth in Christ. 
Not the truth only. He doesn't just say, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. He says, it's the truth in Christ. What, what does he mean? He means here's something that is consonant or something that is consistent with Christianity. Throughout Romans, I've been setting forth Christianity. And I tell the truth, Paul says, Christianity does not place me at odds with the Jews. Do you understand that? That's the sense here. Of this, his conscience is in agreement, being certified by the witness of the Holy Spirit himself. Not only I tell the truth in Christ, but I, I call upon the name of the Holy Spirit who, who has filled me, who dwells in me. He bears witness to my conscience. I know that I'm not wrong. I know that I'm not lying. There is no stronger form of certitude that is possible for a Christian to express than to speak like this. Now, let me say this. I doubt that any of us should speak like this very often. It is dangerous to speak like this. And yet I would also suggest that there are times in which we are so full of the spirit and we are so moved by the spirit that we are moved to speak with this kind of boldness and this kind of certainty. What is he doing when he speaks with such strong language? He's certifying what is otherwise considered a shocking and almost an unbelievable statement. And it's shocking on two fronts. What, what I mean is, and even now you might think, I can't believe that Paul said this. And yet to be, to be clear that he really meant what he said, he adds this he adds this statement. That's the first reason. As though to say, you say, well, could a Christian say this? Paul is saying, yes, I promise you he can. That's the first reason. The second is this, that it seemed unbelievable, not just as a Christian, but as uh, someone who was estranged from the Jews. The Jews were saying, well, Paul, you're against us. And Paul is saying, I promise you I'm not. I promise you both as a Jew and a Christian that I am not against you. I am not your enemy. I am your friend. In fact, I am seeking you to befriend you in a way that I never did before I was a Christian. Here I am speaking out of a spirit of true concern. And so he emphatically states the reverse. Not only was it possible for a Christian to speak this way, but Paul in particular as a Jew, or we could say as a former Jew with respect to his religion, it would be impossible, in fact, for him to state with any greater vehemence the depth of his feeling for his people, his countrymen, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is he so concerned to emphasize in this emphatic way? What was so shocking and so important that he added all these, uh, these superlatives to emphasize? And it was this in verse 2. His great sorrow and continual grief. For his kinsmen, his countrymen, according to the flesh, for the Jews. Paul is saying this, in my heart, I feel this terrible sense of grief, this sense of pain. I'm burdened, I'm vexed. This is something, in a sense, which haunts me every day. That the Jews should be outside, even as I stand within. Didn't we sing that in the first hymn? Why was I given a place when so many stand without? You see, we, we were happy when we were singing that, but Paul had a tear in his eye. He had an eye to those who were standing out, those with whom he was once so deeply united. And so there's a depth of feeling that he's expressing here. It is the profoundest sense of grief that anyone could possibly express. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. How could anyone put it stronger than that? He was grieving for his people. And the sorrow is expressed in this way. This is where the, 
the shock factor comes in. This is where you say, could a Christian ever say this? Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. What a statement. It is absolutely astonishing that he says that. It is almost unbelievable. Almost unbelievable. And that's why he has to say, listen to me, I, I tell the truth. My conscience is clear. The Holy Spirit acquits me when I make this statement. What is the true force of the words? You see, you can't, and this is what some people do. They say, here's how we eliminate the scandal. We empty the words of their meaning. No, let's not do that. Let's give the words their true force and their true meaning, and then let's eliminate the scandal in another, in another way and try to understand how a Christian could say this. The true force of the words are this, anathema. A cursed thing, cut off from Christ. I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ. That I was lost, that I was perishing, that I should be bound to go to hell. I could wish that this would be my fate if only the Jews might be saved. Isn't it interesting to notice him saying that just after he had said at the end of chapter 8, the opposite. He had said, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Of that, I'm absolutely assured. And then he says in these verses, I could almost wish that I could be separated from the love of Christ if only the Jews would be saved. You notice the sequence of thought. Well, that tells us for one thing that he isn't entertaining an actual possibility. That's the first thing we need to see. It's clear. He's already said, no, I can't be. And I think it should also be clear from the way I've been framing it, that he's entertaining a wish. And yet nothing could be more calculated to display the intensity of the feeling that he felt in such a contrast. After, after just saying, nothing can separate me, now say, now I, I almost could find myself wishing that I could be, if only they were saved. Well, we find differing viewpoints here. Calvin's viewpoint is that this is what Calvin actually wished. In, in, in a view of ecstasy, he said, now place me there, Lord. Place me there, and that me outside, and them in. Well, I, it should be clear that he couldn't mean that. The Christian's name is in the book of life. That that's the thing he rejoices in more than anything else. And he could never actually wish that his name was blotted out. Not for any reason. Well, Robert Haldane tries to resolve it like this. He says, this is Paul reflecting on his pre-conversion state. I, I don't feel any need to refute that. But Hodge and others... Lloyd-Jones, Murray, myself, suggest that its force is, is something more like this. I could wish, or I could almost wish. There is a, uh, as one commentator puts it, there's a tentative force. A tentative force. Lloyd-Jones even says, he doesn't even finish the thought. I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, but, but he leaves it there. He doesn't, he doesn't go on with the thought. I could almost find myself wishing, if such a thing were possible, that our places were changed. Of course, I know it's not. We think, for instance, of Moses. We say, well, has anyone ever said anything like this? Well, the answer is yes. We find Moses saying in Exodus chapter 32, verses 30 through 32. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin. And have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Now, that wasn't actually possible. God couldn't actually or wouldn't actually take Moses out of the book, nor would Moses really wish that. 
And yet it is a way, it is a form of speech, it is a form of hyperbole by which we express an intensity of feeling. We are entertaining a possibility which upon further reflection we realize is not true, nor is something we really wanted. And yet we could say of this that the Apostle Paul is saying something that is in fact consistent with a true burden for souls. Something which a man who has such a burden can only say, but those who don't could never say nor understand. Those who are indifferent to the lost will always find something strange here. May I also say that what he says here is consistent with what Christ himself not only said, but did. He did change his place with ours. John Murray puts it very well when he says, uh, let's see. It is a love pattern after the love of the Savior who was made a curse and sin for the redemption of men. So that's what Paul is saying. But let me go on to the implications of the teaching or the practical application. What do we make as Christian people of this statement? And what does it have to say to us? Well, the first thing is that it is wrong for us somehow as Christian people, 21st century Gentiles in Tallahassee, to be indifferent to the fate of the Jewish people. I'm saying that's sin. I'm calling it sin. I'm calling the church to repent of that indifference or worse, hostility. That kind of thing is fashionable today. You come out of dispensationalism and you show your repudiation for it by becoming hostile to the Jewish people. I'm saying that's wrong. Paul is setting forth an idea that ought to capture our hearts along with his. He is setting forth his burden for the Jewish people in order that we might be burdened along with him. That along with him, given the long history of the Old Testament, that we might have an enormous sense of the tragedy of the Jews. Again, that Jesus should come to them and they should reject him. That even to this day, a veil lies over their hearts. I'm, I'm asking you, does that grieve you? Does that burden you in any way? Does it burden you to hear that Christ came to his own and, and they received him not? Or do you just throw that line away? And what do you do with the Old Testament after all? Does this not, along with Paul, not just capture our minds, but our hearts as well? Does it not fill our hearts with sorrow that even today there is such hostility to Jesus among the Jews? Why is it that they, of all people, should reject Jesus Christ? Oh, along with Paul, I say that it might be otherwise, that the, not, that the natural sons of Abraham might become spiritual heirs. Or let me put it in this form. Is there any desire among Orthodox Presbyterians to evangelize the Jews? I wonder if that's ever discussed in uh, the Foreign Missions Committee. You know Robert Murray McShane? Uh, so many of you know about him for various reasons, whether you've read his memoirs and remains or his little work, I Love the Lord's Day, or you have his, his insert in your Bible, uh, his, uh, his calendar of Christian readings. Do you know that he was a missionary to the Jewish people? I wonder if such a thought has ever occurred to us. I think that's a kind of test that we might ask ourselves. Or somehow has this nation been excluded from uh, our own sense of missionary endeavor? But that leads me to the next point. And here I'm borrowing from Martin Lloyd-Jones' exposition of the passage as he applies it. 
This is a passage where we become aware of the true force of Christianity in a man's life. We see what Christianity does to a man. Here is the Apostle Paul, a man who was uh, intensely proud of, the, of, of his heritage. He was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. You read Philippians 3, you get the sense of how he felt uh, formally. This was a man who was naturally given to strong feelings uh, and, and feelings of, uh, of the, the strength of the ties that bound him. And we, and we see here in his own personal reflections what Christianity has done to him. Or I could put it like this, what it does and what it doesn't do. Because so often we fail to uh, be right on either account. The true force of Christianity is that it divides. It's like a sort of division, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. In that sense, we could say it breaks natural ties. It sets mother against son and, 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 and son against father and, and even sometimes husband against wife. It, it, in a sense, it's tragic to see. And many of you, I think, have seen it in your life. The sort of division that Christianity creates. Uh, along comes Christ into your life. He calls you to himself. And, and you realize this is the most disruptive force. In all of history, the force of Christianity, the force of Jesus Christ himself and your allegiance to him is overwhelming and overwhelmingly more important than any other allegiance in all of your life. Nothing else can compare. And as Lloyd-Jones says, I would echo him, you know, the people on the other side, they begin to resent this. They say, you know, you're not the person you once were. You're not as committed. You're not as uh, you're, you're not as you're not as committed to us as you once were. You seem to be a different person. Not only do you have a new commitment to this person, Jesus Christ, but to a new people. Now you're talking all the time about Christians. They're, they seem to be your brothers. So he's drawing a clear line of distinction. The Apostle Paul is here. Jesus is. There are natural brothers. That's who he's speaking of. But there are also spiritual brothers. And it is clear if you read all of Paul's epistles about whom he feels the strongest, whom he loves the most, my dearly beloved. He's speaking to Christians, his brothers, according to the spirit. But at the same time, what Christianity doesn't do, while it does create this sort of division, while it does break natural ties, the breaking of natural ties, while also it, it forms new ties, which are the supreme things, it doesn't break the, the old ties in, in a complete and a total way. Becoming Christians does not make us unnatural, or, or, or the, the, the new way people put it is, grace does not destroy nature. Let me read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say, and what is a very helpful section. I think it has a lot to say to Christians today, and our tendency to spiritualize everything, even natural ties. He says, the next point is that though all that is perfectly true of us, and he's speaking of these new relationships that are su supreme in our lives, all that's true of us, it does not mean that we've ceased to be interested in the old relationship. We must not say that. All I'm saying is that the new relationship is the one that becomes supreme, but it does not cancel the other. Now, this is a point which some people seem to find difficult to grasp. The Christian is never meant to be unnatural. He is spiritual, but that does not mean he becomes unnatural. He does not sever completely the old relationship. He's in a new one. There is this essential difference, but it does not mean that he has ceased altogether to belong to the order of nature, so-called. This is true, of course, in all our relationships. 
There are some people who have tried to argue because the apostle said there's neither Jew nor Greek, circumcision nor uncircumcision, uh, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, that the Christian is some sort of supernaturalist. But that does not follow at all. Paul does not mean that a man ceases to belong to his nation. What he does mean is that those things do not matter at all as far as salvation is concerned. The Jew must no longer think that he, alo- that he alone is the man who belongs to the chosen people because God is taking his people out of all nations. Salvation is not determined, Paul says, in a national manner. But it does not mean that there is no sense or meaning in these national divisions and distinctions. It means that we are not governed by them, but it does not abolish them. That, that one paragraph, I think, is very helpful in, in, in drawing this line of distinction, what Christianity does and what it doesn't do. It brings in these new relationships. It makes them the supreme thing in our lives, but it does not abolish the old relationships. It places them in a secondary category. It transforms our view of them, but it does not abolish them. And so you see, Paul was a Christian. That was the supreme thing for him. Yet as a Christian, he had this special grief for his natural ties. Becoming a Christian did not eliminate this, not in the least. If anything, uh, if anything, it gave him a heightened sense of the peril of his countrymen. Like a man you, you could imagine, and perhaps many of you can. In fact, some of you do. I know this. A man who grieves or a mother who grieves for his children who are unsaved Is that not a special kind of grief? You are looking at this person as a Christian, but also as a father. And so Paul is looking at these people as a Christian, but also as a countryman. And he's saying, my heart breaks for my kinsmen. And I am I am suggesting that a Christian can do this and that a Christian must do this. We could look at this as Westerners and say, you know, it was amazing to see in the time of the Reformation and even before that, the way, as Matthew Henry once said, God took the gospel from the east and he bestowed it upon the west. And then it was flourishing in the west for so long. And yet here we see the light of Christianity going out in the west. Are we not entitled in some sense to lament that and to say, oh, God, that Christianity might flourish again in this land? You've brought so many revivals to America. You have caused not only Christianity, but reformed Christianity to flourish in this country. Would you do so again? I'm asking you, am I entitled to say that? Well, I think that I am because the Apostle Paul was entitled to say that of his own people. He was speaking as a Christian about his countrymen. So too I speak as a Christian about my countrymen, about my heirs. I think we're entitled to do that. And so to go on with Lloyd-Jones' argument, he says that every Christian is aware of a kind of dualism that is present. We've not ceased to be natural, he says. There's dualism. We are aware of this, of two sides. Our allegiance to Christ And then our lesser allegiance to those natural ties, to our family, to our people, to our nations, and so on, even to our ancestors. And you do not resolve the tension by saying, you know, now that I'm a Christian, these other things, my family, my country, my ancestors, my heirs, they don't mean anything to me now. No, the way you resolve the tension is like Paul does. You say, I long that they might be saved and thus become my spiritual brothers. That's how you untie the knot as a Christian. Let me let me close by one final implication. And that that is this, that all that I've been saying is a very powerful, practical test as to whether 
we really believe what we claim to believe as Christians. And what I mean is this. Not only do you rejoice that you are saved, I take it for granted that you do. But do you, do you grieve that others are lost? Are you like David in Psalm 119 when he says, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Do you have that kind of burden for souls? Do you see the true state of the lost and do you mourn for them as those who are perishing? If we really claim to believe these things, how can we not? We love what Jesus tells us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, we rejoice to hear that as those who are perishing. But do you realize there are those who are perishing? And how do you feel about them? Do you see that many are perishing? Or is it enough for us that we are saved while others perish? You see, that's the test. There is perhaps no test so searching and powerful as this. How do we feel about the lost? Examine yourselves. Does it grieve you deeply that those to whom nature has bound you, your countrymen, your family, and so on, should perish in a state of unbelief? Do you have anything of Paul's burden for souls? I confess to whatever extent I do feel it, the extremity of Paul's emotion and desire expressed here is not found in my heart. I'm unable to testify to you as he testified to them or else I'd be found a liar, a liar. And so what I'm telling you is that as I read this passage, as I relate to Paul, I'm a Christian, he's a Christian. What I become aware of as he is expressing his burden for souls is the lack of a burden in my own heart. That's typically what happens when you read personal statements in Paul or other great preachers or eminent Christians. We see their hearts laid bare and we admire them. But at the same time, we become aware that there is in them a spirituality that far surpasses our own. And that's the value of a passage like this. He's not just setting forth a theology of history. He's laying bare his heart. And so it becomes the statement like a mirror into which we look and discover the state of our souls. Well, look here, Paul says, in a sense. Here's the test. How do you feel about the lost? How do you feel about the fact that family members are perishing? How do you feel about the fact that your countrymen all around you are utterly lost and perishing? And then, how do you feel about the Jews? Does it grieve you or burden you at all that they have rejected their Messiah. Have you read your Old Testaments? Did it ever grieve you to read or to think about them? As I've said many times that Christ came to his own and his own received him, him not. Do you long that it should be otherwise with respect to them? And then if not, why not? Do you hear Christ saying in Matthew 23, verse 37 and following, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you hear Jesus saying that and share his lament? And then do you share Paul's eagerness to know the mystery of Israel, whether perhaps God might still yet have something left for the Jews in his plan, in his purposes, or is he altogether moved on? Here are searching questions and may the sermons to come help us in this regard 
to know ourselves, and to learn the mystery of Israel, we hope, and to gain something of the heart of the Apostle Paul in this regard. Amen. And let us come to the table together.